Dose of Leadership Podcast, episode 297. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to the show. Richard Ryerson here. Thank you for tuning in to Dose of Leadership, the show where we talk to the engaging conversations with top thought leaders on the topic of leadership, personal development, entrepreneurship. We kind of cover the whole gamut, but leadership is the umbrella that we're all here for because we're all called to leadership, right? We're all here to do what it takes, to learn what it takes, to become a better leader in every aspect of our lives. That's the goal, and hopefully this show can help you. One of the resources that can help you in that journey. Great guest today that's going to help you in your leadership journey, and it's Tim Leak. Tim Leak is an executive leadership coach that lives here in Wichita, Kansas. And I just, uh, he's been in my LinkedIn circle here locally in town. And, and as I network here around Wichita and my local area, people say, man, you need to meet Tim Link. You need to meet Tim Link. Finally, we had lunch and finally we decided he agreed to sit down with me face to face. So it might sound a little different uh, because we were sitting in a room together uh, with lavalier mics. And uh, I just really enjoyed this conversation. Tim really understands leadership. And since 2001, he's led a wide range of coaching engagements for Fortune 500 companies, fast-growing startups, enterprising nonprofits. And it's all about cultural transformation for him. I love his views on cultural uh, or of culture and the impact within the organization. And, and uh, it's just a really fun conversation. He does hold a master certified coach designation, which is the highest level of credential awarded by the International Coach Federation. And I've already learned a lot from him just in my short engagements with Tim. I look forward to learning more as I improve as a leadership coach myself. He's a lifelong Kansan, and you're really going to enjoy his story about how he started in radio and then ended up in the leadership space. So I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Hey, reach out to me at richard at doseofleadership.com. Let me know where you're at in your leadership journey. If you're interested in joining my Legacy Leader Blueprint Mastermind, reach out to me at richarddoseofleadership.com. I'm doing a special thing this summer where I'm actually recording two special sessions. In addition to the 20 videos and the four masterminding sessions with me, I'm throwing in two roundtable discussions with top thought leaders, someone like a Tim Link or someone like a Jim Kuzas. I'm working on the names and finalizing as, as I'm recording this even now, and I'll be announcing it soon. But if you join now for 349 bucks, or you can spread it over three payments, 130 bucks a month, you can become part of this mastermind. you got to ap- apply, though. You can't just pay. You need to email me, let me know you're interested, and we'll have a conversation to see if you'd be a good fit. And if you are and you do become part of the show or part of this mastermind, you'll become part of the show because we'll record those roundtable discussions and eventually play them here on Dose of Leadership. So, again, f- find out more by or expressing interest at emailing me at richard at doseofleadership.com. All right, without further ado, great conversation with Tim Link, executive leadership coach here in Wichita, Kansas. Well, Tim, it's a pleasure to sit down with you this morning and talk about leadership. Um, so I'm excited to do this face-to-face. Normally, I do this on the radio, so it's oh, uh-huh. it's unique to sit across from someone yeah. and talk about leadership. But I've been a fan of you you know, uh, here in Wichita for quite, quite a while. I've heard great things about you. You know, we had lunch a month or so ago. 
So thank you for, for doing this. I appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, you bet. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. So why are you so passionate about leadership? You know, I get that question all the time. In fact, someone asked me, he's like, why do you do this? Why leadership? So I'm asking that of you. Why, why is this so important to you? Well, be, um, hmm. I, think it's, uh, I think it's important for a number of reasons. I think it's, it, it impacts a lot of people. And it makes uh, a big difference in how people experience their lives at work. And that bleeds over into their life outside of work. And uh, it's, it's, in, it's incredibly impactful just on, on a number of levels. Yeah. Central to everything that we do. I yeah. mean, it's like with <laughs> there's nothing of significance without leadership, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, everything is, is kind of falls back on. And I think when people have asked me that, I said, yeah, I said, well, because without it, I think for me, I know personally, I was always focused on one aspect of my life, right? It was always, and I was focusing on my career. I was thinking leadership, I thought career. Mm-hmm. But then when I finally started, cha- things started changing when I put it in every aspect yeah, of your life, yeah, right? It's because yeah. they're so universal, right? The principles are so universal to everything that we do. So how did you Absolutely. get started? How did you get started in it? I mean, what, how did you get into the coaching and the consulting business? So I was in the broadcast uh, industry, so I I was uh, running radio stations here in Wichita in the 1990s, and uh, along about 1995 or 96, uh, the industry uh, was deregulated. Yeah, that's Uh, when all the clear channel came in and brought up all these little small... So what happened as a result of deregulation, that meant that uh, any one company could own multiple radio stations in any given market. And so it was kind of like the Wild West. It was right. people were just going and grabbing and buying and selling and trading and merging. And and so for an industry that had been singularly focused on one or two products, mm-hmm. uh, all of a sudden uh, any company or organization might have three, four, five, even six products or radio stations that they had to figure out how to make work. And not only that, but the people that were now all under one roof were people that had been fierce competitors mm. and, and engaged almost literally in hand-to-hand combat out of the marketplace. <laughs> through, yeah. Very fierce, uh, competitive, very fun, but very competitive industry. And so I was on the front lines of that and was really forced to figure out how to get people to come together in a new way. Right. Uh, and uh, not only come together and learn to work together, but there was an expectation that the the sum of the parts now uh, uh, had a kind of an exponential uh, effect. So it could no longer be one plus one equals two. You had to take one station plus one station and make it equal three or four. And so we we were doing some pretty amazing things. We had some we had the support of some very visionary owners who believed in the power of the people side of the business. Mm-hmm. And we were working with the Gallup organization twenty years ago. We were working with them when First Break All the Rules came out, the oh, yeah. book that had the Q12 embedded, mm-hmm. which is the uh, elements that have to be present in an organization in order for employees to be most engaged at work. So all the, all the stuff around employee engagement and 
teaming was happening at the time. And so I was kind of getting to experiment with all of that in a live laboratory with lots of support from owners. And so I really got energized by all of that. There were people in the industry at the time that were what I would call lifelong broadcasters. Mm -hmm. Radio was in their blood and they were excellent and but they weren't necessarily great people leaders who weren't necessarily great business people. I was more turned on by the people side and the team side. Interesting. <clears throat> and so as the industry continued to consolidate, uh, I actually got, uh, I have the distinction of having been fired three times, <laughs> twice from the same job and then once from another job, all within the same industry, within the same marketplace. And so in order to stay in the business, I would have had to leave town and that was just not in the cards for me. I was, I had no interest in that. So I decided to do what I was doing inside the radio stations from a people and leadership perspective. I just decided to take that out and offer that to other people. And, uh, and that led to training and credentialing as an executive coach. That's interesting. I love that story. That's interesting because I'm interested when you, when before the deregulation, when, you know, you're a radio guy with the dream to be in broadcasting, was it to be on air talent? I mean, going further back and then, well, interestingly, no. Um, I never imagined being a radio guy, and I really wasn't an on-air guy. A lot right. of people hear my voice and they go, "Oh, you must have been on." Well, yeah, air. because you've got yeah. such a great timbre in your voice. I was never, good. never an on-air guy. I could never be that glib or uh, funny or clever right. or improvise like that. I could do it if I had something to read, but that was about <laughs> it. Right. So, um, what I did want to do was combine sales and marketing in a business application. Okay. Yeah. And so I was real I I targeted media sales for that reason. Right. And got into radio sales which is fairly easy to get into honestly. Mm-hmm. Became successful and moved pretty quickly into management and leadership. But the mindset wasn't so much that people like when you're doing this in this trajectory sales and doing this and making mm-hmm. your name. You really weren't a that's what I'm trying to get at. You weren't really kind of in the people no, side of it. No, I didn't. Right? No, I didn't fancy myself as a people leader or organizational leader necessarily. Yeah. In fact, my boss at the time, I had been uh, in the organization for six months, and he pulled me aside and he said, "You're going to be our next sales manager, but I need you to be doing what you're doing now for another six months. You need a year to have some credibility, but you're the guy. You've got what it takes." And I said. Well, okay. Well, okay. So maybe I do have what you think. You know, it's interesting. So here's this, this deregulation kind of forced this clashing of cultures or this collapse or this forcing of separate cultures together. And when, and when I was listening to you tell that story, and I know some radio folks, I've been fascinated with radio and television broadcasting, and you're right. And, and all organizations are guilty of this, but particular radio where you think that the people that were successful was the on-air talent or the radio personalities. And so it's a perfect prime example I can imagine where someone's technical and tactical abilities that brought them to this level, when you have this deregulation emerging of cultures, that's not going to, you know, those, what we perceive as on-air talent or the successful people in the business, that's not what's going to drive us to success, right? So you're That's kind of absolutely forward. right. Yeah. Yep. It's much more adaptive. Yeah. It requires... All of the soft skills that 
are kind of talked about in a cliche fashion, but it's it's all it's all true. I can imagine because you know, and radio has a reputation, particularly if if you look in the seventies and the eighties and the nineties, particularly seventies and eighties, of a very toxic culture or a play. You know, it's not really a people oriented business. You spit people out. You know, I I can imagine. So I don't know if it was like that in Wichita, but it was actually quite fun. It was really very very fun. It was a blast. Yeah, I can Um, imagine. you know, you play records all day long. You right. you meet rock stars. You go to concerts. Yeah. Uh, you hand out tickets. You sell advertising. You help people with their business. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also a very lifestyle oriented business, especially uh, on the programming and on air side. I mean, those folks lived and breathed. Yeah. It was, it was their total identity, and it was a twenty four seven business. Right. So here we are. We're forced to, as you said, you get in, you're starting to to find the you know break all the rules. You mentioned that and this idea of people and culture. You know, I've really I have matured over the last, particularly doing this show, not really well appreciating how important culture is to. I used to think it was all about strategy and planning mm-hmm. and this and that, but culture yep. culture eats that for lunch every single yep, day. That's right. Right. You can have the best plans in the world, but if your culture is screwed up, it's not going to happen. So I'm a, I don't know if I'm a recent convert. You know, last four or five years, I've really mm-hmm. been to see, yes, the culture mm-hmm. and the culture. And I came from the Marine Corps, and, and after I was out of it, it's, yeah, that's why they're so good, because everything they do is about the culture. It is a culture of leadership. Everything is intentional about bringing the people in and making them feel like they're part of something special, mm-hmm. bigger than themselves. How does that play into your um, kind of philosophies and teaching, this idea of culture? I mean, how do you, what, what does that mean to you? Well, I think it's everything. Uh, it's, it's the, so I, I say it's, I define it as, it's the uh, set of unwritten rules that govern everything. Right. So it's um, it, it um, impacts the behaviors and attitudes that enable, you name it, a household, a, 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 an entrepreneur, a small business, a community to be successful and, and make progress. And it's often misunderstood. It's often underappreciated and... As you said, it eats eats strategy for lunch. It also takes people out. Yeah, uh, it's the it's cited in in research as the number one reason for leaders' failure yeah. is the inability to understand and adapt to and assimilate into the culture. You yeah. can't can't change anything until you integrate into it. Exactly, and I think that's important to note too that. Every talks about culture, changing the culture, improving. I mean, you have one, whether you try or not. I mean, That's you right. have a culture right now. That's right. Yep. So how do we how do we start making an impact? I think a lot of times, you know, you kind of gloss over, and I've seen that, and I've talked to people, and they're like, well, okay, yeah, I want to have a great culture, but where do you start? I mean, mm-hmm. how, how do you even start to affect the culture, I guess? Well, I think it's a function of... Clarifying a, a compelling vision and getting people to see themselves in that and continually staying focused on that. Another way of saying that is being uh, very clear about an organization's purpose, what they're about and why they exist, for what reason. And it's got to be more than 
a paycheck, more than mm-hmm. more than just jobs. Um, Simon Sinek is a guy that uh, you you are probably aware of. Yeah, he's been on the show, yeah. Oh, has he? Yeah, he's been uh, very popular in the last three or four years. And the thing that uh, I think the thing that catapulted him into popularity was his TED talk on um, the power of why. The power of why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it nobody cares what what you're doing; they care why you're doing it. Yeah. So I think that's a, an element of culture. Yeah, I think that understanding why we, I know, and I've talked about this on the show a lot, and maybe it's, I don't know if it's becoming a, a buzzword or cliche, the, you know, why, why do you exist? But I go back to even thinking of my Marine Corps experiences and why they were so successful at what they did was because in a chaotic environment, such as a combat or an asymmetric situation like that, the only way you can succeed is if, the people on the front lines and the in the the lower echelons of the hierarchical ladder, I guess, are empowered to make decisions without asking for permission to the maximum extent possible. But the only way that you can do that is that the senior leadership is communicating maniacally, I like to say, what we're trying to accomplish and why. Mm-hmm. And so if I bring you into the fold and say, Tim, this is what I want you to do. Here's where you fit in. And then I, I keep taking you back and showing you the big picture and how that. Mm-hmm. And that, in theory, is, sounds easy. But, I mean, mm-hmm. to me, it's the senior leadership's job to define the sandbox, yeah. right? And too yeah, often and I the, see the senior. And the uh, kind of the, the picture of the future. Where is it exactly. that we're headed and, and this is why we're going this way. Because okay. if you do this, this is what we're trying to accomplish. And this is why it's important. Because mm-hmm. the freedom of the world <laughs> rests yeah. on it or whatever. Oh, absolutely. You know? But, I mean. Yeah. And and that this takes, is how this is this is why you're important in that. Right. The challenge is I found when both in the military and in the corporate arena, yeah, it, it, it took a lot of discipline for me to do that because what happened was when I'd get pressure from you know, KPIs are red, mm-hmm. budgets are mm-hmm. in, you know, I'm gone over the budget, timelines are compressed. I found myself inserting myself lower and lower and lower dispensing the efforts of those around me, Mm -hmm. you know, and it became so insidious that, you know, two or three months go by and I realize I'm doing the job of what, you know, three or four levels down. But all you're doing is directing and all I'm telling. And, and I prided myself on knowing better, but there I found myself. Yeah. It's very easy to get caught. It's a, it's a very common trap. It's even, even on a, um, on a less grand scale, uh, we talk in coaching about how easy it is for leaders to just get caught by something. Mm-hmm. And so they just drive right into it. Mm-hmm. And there's some brain science behind that. It's how we're wired. We're designed to fix problems. We're socialized to fix problems. We want to be heroes. Yeah. Uh, f- put on the cape and fly right in. And, uh, and the problem is it's, it's often not the right fix. And it... Uh, it disempowers yeah. the person that you're telling. Really so does. so in, in coaching, and we tell people that we're training as coaches, or even if they're not training to be coaches as a profession, they're, we're training them to be more coach-like as leaders. We ask them to just pay attention to that one moment where they get caught and they, they get tripped and they just want to jump in and fix. And rather than do that, 
instead of getting caught, we say get curious instead and just start asking questions. I like that. It is the, the, I'm glad that you said that, that having that coaching mindset, no matter what, no matter where you're at in the leadership spectrum within the organization, right? How do you get that coaching mindset? I didn't even really know what that was until I started coaching myself. I, I didn't even know what the difference between, you know, what does it mean? the difference between coaching and mentoring and all that other stuff. But you're right, having that coaching mindset, and you said something that it really resonated with me, was, you know, develop that curiosity mindset, be insatiably curious, start asking questions, right? Mm-hmm. Just kind of stop. Mm-hmm. Just because we're leaders don't mean we have to, like you said, jump in right. and start inserting right. yourselves lower right. and lower. Right. Like, how do you do that? I mean, how do you, what are kind of the, the steps for maybe that mid-level supervisor, that mid-level manager to start developing a coaching mindset? What would you tell them? Well, I think, I think cultivating the ability to be curious is one, and <clears throat> framing your role as one of learner versus mm. fixer, and that's a delicate balance, especially in a middle management role, because you're getting directives from the top, you're, you've got people uh, on the front lines that are looking to you for direction, and at the end of the day, you know, it goes, it's the old um, adage, better to teach a man how to fish than to right. whatever the rest of that is. Yeah. Um, Instead of giving them the fish, teach them to right, fish. Right. right. And so, you know, they're, they're just going to get further faster if they learn to do things on their own and if they build confidence through fixing their own stuff and solving their own problems. And that, that is a, kind of a core tenet of coaching that applies up and down any organizational system, whether it's a bank teller or a uh, Wall Street mogul or some, something in between, they, they're not going to expand their own skill set. They're not going to develop on their mm-hmm. own if all they're getting is direction and commands and being told. Yeah, and therein lies a problem why it's so difficult because the coaching mindset, or, or which that pays the most dividends, but you don't see the results right away, right? It's a long process. Yep. And that's the, that, to me, that's why it can be so difficult because you're getting pressure from above. You're getting pressure from the side, right? You're getting pressure from the realities of the environment or the situation. It is. Yeah. It, it, it's, it takes time, and it's, it's just like going to the gym, yeah. You don't get an immediate result, but if you do it for six months or a year, you really start to see a difference. And so in the gym, you're building muscle. In, in a coaching relationship, in a, in a work setting, you're building capacity in others. And you can't always do it. You have to recognize that you have you, sometimes it, yeah. it's one approach. And sometimes you have to be more directive and you have to wear more of the the uh, management director hat and you need to know where to balance the two. Yeah. I'm glad that you said that because I think a lot of times we're looking for, particularly for new leaders, we're looking for the one way to do it. And this mm-hmm. with leadership, it's so gray. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you got, I mean, I kind of equate it to like teaching your kid how to drive. I think we've talked about this before, right? I mean, and I've got four kids, four daughters, and each of them are different, you know, different capacities, learning mm-hmm. abilities, mm-hmm. This one got it easy. This one's afraid. Whatever. But whatever the case may be, certainly I'm more hands-on and directive. I'm never, you know, I think a lot of times I've seen new leaders like, well, I got to be this. I'm not going to be a micromanager. I'm going to be a delegator, right? Mm-hmm. And they they give everything away. Mm-hmm. And that's like throwing the keys to your 
That's right. 15 year old and tell them to go drive on the highway at night on an icy road. That's right. They they need to know that you're not going to let them crash. Right. But you are going to let them find their way down the road. And and that gets to the idea of letting people take risks, risks, Mm -hmm. making it uh, okay to take risks. You know, if people are afraid of ret- retribution or being called out for going a little bit outside of the the uh, their lane, then all they're going to do is stay right in their lane, mm-hmm. and there's not much learning is going to happen. Yeah. What do you think some of the big reasons why new leaders fail? I mean, what what are some of the big pitfalls that you see? So I think that really the the theme there is the Inability to, to really understand and read the culture. Yeah. And related to that, they either move too fast or too slow, so they don't understand um, the, uh, the mandate. They don't understand the levels of permission that they have, right. whether Im- implicit or explicit. Many new leaders will will come to me and say, well, I did such and such and I got in trouble. And they'll say, well, so what do you think about that? Well, nobody ever told me that that would be about, well, okay, so how do you, how can you better read that? So it's, a, they're looking for specifics and tangibles that they're not going to get. So they're, they're often in ambiguous situations, but there's, there's the culture that kind of underpins that that dictates what is and isn't okay, what's appropriate style-wise or not, how fast or slow to go. And if they're not mindful of that, it's going to get them in trouble. It's mm-hmm. like um, it's like whitewater rafting. You know, you're going down the rapids, and there, there are a lot of rocks underneath the surface that you don't see. Right. And if you're not careful, they'll, one of them will flip you over. <laughs> yeah. I found... Probably one of my biggest mistakes when, as a new leader is like, I, and it hit me like a ton of bricks, is I, I didn't even think about how to lead up, right? I was mm-hmm. always thinking about, in air quotes, fixing, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that yeah. was a mistake too, yeah. fixing my people below yeah. me. It's like, just getting to think like me, and that yeah. was a huge mistake. Yeah. And on top of that, I didn't manage the relationship up, mm-hmm. which that really led to a lot of conflict. Yeah. yeah. And so... Yeah, that's a big thing. I... I was just meeting with a new client yesterday who's um, an executive in a multi-state service operation, has a board of directors. Mm. And this person is doing an amazing job. The business is doing beautifully. And uh, he's very concerned about his ability to bring the board along with him. And there are factions on the board. And he's having to manage through those. Um, They are changing direction on him from time to time. It's very complex and very complicated. This is all unwritten. Right. And these are all things that he has to kind of navigate. And he engaged me specifically to help him think through how to better lead his board. Yeah. Because they re- at the end of the day, a board is a group of, they're either volunteers or they're paid you know, to mm-hmm. show up one day a quarter and all they know is what you tell them. Exactly. And so it's a it's a it's a relationship that's laden with 
potential conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how to navigate through that, mm-hmm. you know? I don't know. I think for, for me, you know, particularly in an, in an, I've been in environments where the culture's been toxic. I've been in situations where the leader above me didn't get it. And that was, you know, I, I never thought about that. And that's this, going back to the example I was telling you about where it hit me like a ton of bricks. It was kind of a toxic culture. The, the person I was working for didn't see eye to eye in the leadership styles, the, the philosophies in leadership, and we really butted heads. Mm-hmm. And I found myself, well, forget him. Mm-hmm. I'm going to focus on this. Mm-hmm. And it just, in, in hindsight, I wish I would have Found a way. Found a way to Mm -hmm. to develop a professional relationship regardless of, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because I found that even though there were differences, a lot of what his, now that I am a little more seasoned and mature, that a lot of his leadership style was based in insecurity. And if Mm -hmm. I could have saw that with empathy and my emotional quotient was a little stronger, Mm -hmm. I think I could have turned it, you know, it would have been a a better situation. Right. I I had almost the exact same thing happen the second time I got fired. Uh, was a, we were getting passed around from region to region because we were in the Midwest and the organization was developing more of a national footprint. We got passed from the, from the West region to the Gulf region to the Midwest region to the Southeast region to the East region. And it was kind of comical. Um, and it was like playing Russian roulette uh, because with each change, I got a new leader uh, up the line, and I was doing a great job with with uh, my level and everything right. below. And I really thought that was my job. Yep, was to kind of protect, yeah. uh, be the screen, uh, my organization yeah, right. from all the baloney and all the churn that was happening up above. Well, uh, the 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 straw that broke my back was a a leader that that took over my region. And not to stereotype, but uh, a stereotypical East Coast guy from New Jersey uh, might as well have been a character on The Sopranos. (laughs) Just uh, abrasive and mean and weird philosophy. Just did not understand the people side and the adaptive side. Had a way of doing things. And rather than... So I thought it would require that I would have to compromise everything that I was about. And mm-hmm. I would have to ask my people to compromise everything they were about to do it his way. And so we kind of tried to do it halfway. And bottom line is, I did not pay attention to cultivating that relationship. Right. And I think, and I, I know I could have done a better job there. Plus, I thought he would go away eventually. Because right. that was the, that was <laughs> right. the pattern. Uh, and... Um, yeah, so he did go away eventually, but before he did, he he um, let me go. Oh yeah, but it was it was a classic culture clash. Yeah, and it's the emotional quotient stuff, right? How do we how do we exercise that piece of it? You know, I mean, I've certainly understand that, and I I certainly have seen or have tapped into that emotional intelligence side of myself, and mm-hmm. really tried to cultivate that over the last ten mm-hmm. years. What do you do? I mean, I mean, you know the power of it, right? I mean, you see the importance of it. What do you do? Well, you know, I can go back to that situation, and I'll tell you what I did inside my organization at the time. So this was the sixth regional vice president that we had in four years. 
Wow. And with every successive change, I would put on my sales guy hat and I would go into the all staff meetings or into my manager's meetings. And I would say, Hey, this is going to be great. These guys are really excited about us. And, and, um, you know, eventually that just got to be, that just wore thin and it rang hollow. Mm-hmm. And I started to feel disingenuous saying that. So with this last one, I can remember distinctly. Uh, and and by the way, I had I had a senior manager that was working for me, um, who was brilliant, and she was distancing herself from me more and more with each successive change. Mm-hmm. And so with this last one, I had them all together. And I said, you know this is just wearing me out. I got to tell you guys, I'm so tired of this. I I don't know what we're going to do. And this person, this woman looked at me and said, Oh my gosh, thank you so much. And that was like a, it was a uh, turning point for my relationship with her. Right. She said, finally, you know, finally you're, you know, you're going to quit trying to sell us a line and, and tell us how difficult it really is. Now we can move forward. That's great, man. Yeah. I love that story. That so it's whole, a, you know, being vulnerable. And, the authenticity, the vulnerability piece, mm-hmm. right? Which I think are primary currencies for leadership. I think mm-hmm. if I see any cultural shift in leadership, and maybe it's just because I become more aware of it. I don't know. I'm curious what your take on it is. But it seems to me that the organizations that get it, the ones that are really kind of knocking out of the park and making things happen, that are going to be the sustainable legacy type organizations are the ones that are tapping into that authenticity that vulnerability and those courageous decisions, right? The willingness mm-hmm. to be, take those smart mm-hmm. risks. What do you, what do you think when you hear that? So I, I totally agree. Vulnerability is kind of the new, uh, kind of a new buzzword, which is interesting and true. And I want to make sure that it doesn't become cliche. Right. Um, because nobody wants a weak leader. Right. Uh, but they do want people that are real and real people are not perfect. Yeah. And so it's important that people um, are open about what they're learning and what they don't know and, and how they're developing and what they're, what they're working on. Um, I, I like to say that, you know, we're not, we're not turkeys. We're never done. We're always cooking. We're right. always, we're always developing. And that's true regardless of your uh, position or level of authority inside an organization. And so it's, it's, it's essential that people in levels of senior authority are willing and able to convey what they don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. And I like that. I think, too, that a lot of times people do equate that vulnerability with being a weak leader, but that's why I think you couple it with that courage, right? That intensity of will, mm-hmm. you know, the Jim Collins, good to great, the intensity of will with that tremendous sense of humility, right? And making it's, those courageous decisions, right? Because people follow courage. They don't that's follow, right. you know, that's right. they, they do follow that courage. Yeah, they don't right. follow the, the personality, I don't think, or, the, or your resume. They follow courageous, authentic, and real decisions. It's all about connecting with people on a below-the-neck level. And yeah, you just don't do that without revealing some emotion. Right. Yeah. It doesn't mean you have to come in there and wear all your emotions on your right. sleeve and right. air all your dirty laundry about what's happening at right. home. Right. 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 You know, you right. need to compartmentalize some of that stuff, I think, mm-hmm. too. 
I kind of equate it to like when I'm flying a plane, you know, I may be scared to death with the engine firelight on there, but if you're sitting next to me, I'm not going to let you know that yeah, I'm scared that's right. because you that's need right. to stay calm too, that's right? right? So, you know, if you be authentic and vulnerable and tell you how scared I am at the moment probably isn't the smart thing to do if you have no flying experience. Mm-hmm. That's so right. I need to be, that's right. Have that presence. Yeah. Well, this has been fun, Tim. I, I could sit there and talk to hours with you about this stuff and, you know, maybe we can broach another topic another time or even no, specific stuff. But what, how, what is your ideal client? What are you looking for? How can people connect with you? I mean, it, I mean certainly you're more than just local. I mean, I know, I know you do a lot of stuff here locally here in Wichita, but you work with people anywhere and everywhere, right? I do. That's right. Work with people across the country and, and occasionally some internationally. So the So my ideal client is someone who understands that there's some difference or some gap between where they are and kind of what they, where they aspire to be. Mm -hmm. And they're willing to do some work to get there. And uh, I partner with them in helping them make progress either for themselves, uh, often for themselves and their team or organization. So, you know, it's people that really understand the power and importance of all the adaptive stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, People that reach certain levels of leadership have the have the qualifications. They have the knowledge. They have the expertise. They have the processes. They they know they they wouldn't be where they are if they didn't have all of that stuff. Right. So now it's time to build on that and get into the um, kind of these more adaptive spaces where they uh, are finding their edge and growing past it, uh, and they're really looking for a safe, uh, objective, kind of external place to do that. Great. I'll have you can get a website. You want to, I'll have links to this in the post. Sure. To, what's your website? Yeah. So the website is linkresourcegroup.net. Kind of long, but uh, that's link like the missing link. Mm-hmm. And then resourcegroup.net. Perfect. I'll have a link to that on the post. Man, this has been fun, Tim. I really appreciate you doing this. And I've been wanting to do this for a couple of years, and so I'm glad that that we yeah, did it. Ho- hopefully we'll do it's it again. Great. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the Good show. Good experience for me, too. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Yep, you bet. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. Go to richardryerson.com or doseofleadership.com and fill out the contact page and reach out to me. Let me know where you're at your leadership journey. Also, if you want access to my brand new online leadership course to help become a better leader, go to legacyleaderblueprint.com. Fill out your email and you gain access to a free 12-minute video that will reveal the top secrets of leadership and also show you how you can gain access, exclusive access, to my online leadership course. That's LegacyLeaderBlueprint.com. Hope to see you on the inside. Thanks for tuning into the show. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.